I received my call to the ministry when I was 26 years old. And frankly, I, I was not very excited about it. I had a great life. I was a high school English teacher. I was a part-time worship leader. And I also was a human resource specialist in the Army Reserves. On top of this, my wife had just had our first child and everything was really going well. I was just super excited about where our life was and I was not incredibly excited when God put on my heart at a men's conference that uh, through the Holy Spirit, he just spoke to me that said that this is, this is what you're going to do. As I looked at the speaker on the stage, God just stirred in my heart just this knowledge that that was where he was calling me was to full-time vocational ministry. And because I wasn't excited about it, I kind of just pushed it off to the side. And I said, you know, God, that must have just been, you know, maybe something I ate, that it was just a crazy idea that, God, you didn't really speak to me. You didn't share that with me. But as time went on and the years kind of pushed on, I kept getting more and more confirmation. I got uh, people in the military telling me, hey, you need to you need to be a chaplain. You'd be a great minister. You know, I had people on the church staff that I was working for saying, man, you need to do you need to do more than just, you know, just lead the worship. You need to do work being a worship pastor. You need to start teaching. You know, you start leading uh, of classes and things like that. And just you know, more and more, we began to just pray and seek and realize that God really was calling us into vocational ministry. Uh, I was losing my satisfaction with teaching that I used to have, and all these things, all these dominoes just started falling into place. And so after I accepted this, I began this journey of, of saying, okay, God, I'm, I'm, I'm your guy. Let's do it. You know, as a, as a family, we came together and said, okay, God, this is what you're setting us apart for. This is what you're calling us to. But it wasn't like a light switch that just flipped on and suddenly uh, I got called by the church community that would want me to be their pastor or, you know, things like it, it, it took 12 years of things falling into place, of being set up at just the right time for God to place me where he has us now in full-time ministry. And during that 12-year waiting period, I got to tell you, I had some really, really tough times because I knew in my heart what God was calling us to. But no matter what we tried, many times things that I tried on my own to do, nothing was working. It was like that little kid's game where you've got the ball with all the slots for the wooden blocks. And I was trying to take the square block and push it in the circle hole. Like no matter how hard I pushed, it just was not happening. And I don't know how many times I went to God and said, God, I know you've called me to this. Why are you not letting me have it? And it became this waiting game where I knew, and even in the middle of my struggle, you know, God allowed all these things to just continue to affirm the call without him actually allowing it to happen. And in this process, we learned how to worship in the waiting. We learned how to worship God in the waiting and say, God, I don't understand it. I don't even like it, but I trust you. God, you're worthy. God, we're just giving this whole situation to you and trusting you, even when we don't understand it, even when we don't like it. God, we trust you. And that can be one of the hardest things in the Christian life, in our walk with God, and the, the, the ability for us to say, God, I'm following you. 
is that trust of how do we worship in the waiting seasons? How do we continue to, to, to affirm God and to, and to worship Him through song, through our, our lives, through our actions, when the things in our lives are not matching up with the promises He's made for us? How do we do that? And so as we look at this idea of how, that we, how do we worship in the waiting, I want to continue our Christmas season you know, messages where we look at the Christmas story in the scriptures and learn how to apply them in our lives. And we find in the story of so many of the characters that are familiar on the pages of scripture, so many of the people who lived 2,000 years ago and God used in mighty ways. But if we're not careful, we can make them storybook characters. I'm terribly guilty of this, that I'm guilty of making them Sunday school lessons with coloring sheets and, and people that are almost kind of made up and forget that as I study them and look at them on the pages of Scripture from 2,000 years ago, that these are not characters in a made-up story. These are real people who really lived and had real struggles where they learned to trust God. Whether it's me looking at David fighting the giant Goliath or Daniel going to face death in the lion's den, it's easy for me to read these passages because I know how it's going to work out. I know that Daniel's going to be saved from the lions. I know that David's going to defeat the giant and so many other examples of scripture that we look at and we forget that when these people in real life are going through these real struggles, they did not know how God was going to work everything out in the end. So as we go back to the Christmas story of the birth of Jesus and the coming of the Messiah, I want to come to this period of waiting that God's people were in and see how we can learn God's character in the process of the waiting that they were in. You see, if you get your Bibles out, we're going to be in a few different places. Mostly we're going to be in Luke chapter 3, but we're also going to touch on a couple of other places. But if you have a paper Bible, you'll really catch something that our digital Bibles can miss. And I love my digital Bible. The older I get, the more I learn to use it because somehow the font in my paper Bible keeps shrinking a little bit more every day. And I can take my electronic Bible and I can make that font larger and easier to read. But the people of Israel, God's chosen people, were in a very long period of waiting when the Christmas story begins. You see, the last book of the Old Testament was written by a prophet named Malachi. And Malachi gets a message from God to take to the people to tell them of how their hearts have turned from God. That yes, they have a temple that they've rebuilt. And yes, they offer sacrifices. And yes, they go through the motions of worshiping God. But their hearts are not in it. And they're actually cutting corners to look really good on the outside. But they're not truly honoring God on the inside with their hearts and with their lives. And so as a result, God's presence leaves the people. And after the book of Malachi closes, after Malachi leaves off his message to the people, God would not send a word to his people for over 400 years. And during that four-century time period where God was silent and no prophecies came and no word would come from God to the people, the people had to learn how in the world do they worship God in the waiting. And now that's the big picture. So let's look at that together in the book of Malachi, chapter 4. Like I said, it's the last book of the Old Testament. And so it's a pretty easy um, thing to catch on to. And we see as we look at this book, as we go to Malachi, chapter 4, we see starting in verse 5. 
that Malachi makes this promise, or God makes the promise through Malachi. Malachi delivers the message. And in verse 5 of Malachi chapter 4, God says this to the people of Israel. He says, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. You see, this is one of the last promises that, hey, before God shows up on the scene, Elijah is going to come back. You see, Elijah was one of a small number of people in the scripture that did not experience physical death. That Elijah, at the end of his life on earth, was caught up in a fire, in a, on a chariot of fire in a whirlwind up into heaven. When Elisha, his, his protege, saw it happen and Elisha inherited the, the man of God position as prophet from Elijah. And Elijah now has, is, is, has been prophesied to return. And he is going to come back the same way he spoke to the people of Israel and delivered God's word. That now Elijah is going to return before the day of the Lord comes, before uh, God sends you know, his presence down and judges Israel on that great and terrible day, Malachi says. He says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. Now, what we end up seeing on the pages of history and the pages of Scripture is how this unfolds. So now if you'll skip forward a few books and go to Luke chapter 3. Last week we were in Luke chapter 2 looking at how Mary and Joseph in the middle of their their new life together and their poverty and their shame and their criticism of culture on them, how they came to, to, to worship God and they met with Simeon. Now we're going to go forward a little bit in the story and we're going to learn about what happens when John the Baptist or John the Baptizer uh, comes on the scene. And we, we will find out a little bit more about the story. We're going to skip back later, but I want you to see this very critical passage in the start of Luke chapter 3. Because this is really important to set the stage for what's going on in the scripture. So in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. And his brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came to John, the son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Now, if you're like me, maybe you've read those verses on the pages of Scripture and just gone right past them. Because at first glance, it just sounds like a, a lot of historical jargon that doesn't matter to us. In, in 2021, why do I care who is the ruler over Galilee or the ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis? Who do I care who the high priests were at the time? But what Luke wants his readers to know, and what I believe God wants to show us, is that all of these important people are in positions of leadership and rulership. That they have all of this power and all of this authority and all of this ability and wealth. But none of these people, not Herod, not Philip, not Lysanias, not the high priest Annas and Caiaphas, none of these people are the ones that God sends his word to. You would think if God was going to send a message to the people of Israel, he would do it through one of these important people. But Luke lists all of these people to do two things. First, to let us know specifically when in history this is happening. But second, and more importantly, he wants us to understand 
that it was not in a palace or the temple that God brought his first word to Israel in over four centuries. Instead, he gives his message, his word to the people. He gives it through John the Baptist, who was living in the wilderness. John, son of Zechariah. Why is that important? Because God loves to take the, the foolish things of this world and use it to make it wise. And he loves to take the wisdom of this world and make it foolish. You see, it's one of these crazy things. God loves to take things and turn it up on its head. This is why the Messiah, even though Jesus came from the line of David, Jesus wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. The, you know, Look at all these crazy things that we see. We see Moses raised in a palace and God uses him mightily in the desert. And he raises Joseph up in the desert, but uses him mightily in the palace. Why? Because God loves to turn things on its head and flip the script so that we could pay attention to what's going on. And the word of God doesn't come to anybody of political or, or, or spiritual importance in the eyes of man. It didn't come to a ruler, didn't come to a governor, didn't even come to the high priests in the temple. It came to John, who was living in the wilderness. And we learn this about, about John. If you keep reading the scriptures, and you're probably already familiar with this, that John lived out in the desert, right? He, he wore, you know, weird clothes and he ate weird food, you know, bugs and honey, right? But people flocked to him. Why? Because he was the one who had been given the word from God. And so after 400 years of waiting, God showed up on the scene. And it says all of these wonderful, wonderful things about John. Jesus would eventually go on to say in during his ministry after John was imprisoned and eventually beheaded, that Jesus would tell his followers that John was the greatest human to ever live that was born of man and woman. <laughs> How crazy is that? So none of them are greater than John the Baptist. John was an amazing, amazing man. What many people consider to be the last Old Testament prophet, even though he's mentioned in what we call the New Testament. He was the last person before Jesus to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. So he's very important. And he comes on the scene in a season of waiting where Israel had spent over 400 years waiting for a message from God. So if you'll flip back a couple of pages, I know we've been playing hopscotch with the scriptures, but now that we know why John is important, John fulfills the, the, this wonderful stopgap where God says, look, I'm going to give you this sign. And then there was 400 years of nothing. And now, after four centuries, God gives another word to his people through John the Baptist. So let's go back to learn more about John the Baptist and how he came on the scene. So in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it says this, When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. I love this, that, that, that these people who would become the parents of John the Baptist were wonderfully organized and you know, brought up in all of this beautiful heritage, which tells you that they were brought up in priestly households that knew about God intimately. And it says this in verse 6, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. But, and here's what we get the but in verse 7, it says this, they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. So 
Elizabeth and Zechariah, these wonderfully holy people of God, had a problem. See, on the big scale, on the big scheme, on the grand scale, we see that God's people were waiting on a message from Him. But on a much smaller scale, these two faithful men and women had not blessed with a child. Their family line was going to die out with them. But while they were worshiping in the waiting, the first thing that we see that you and I can learn from them is that when we are trying to worship in the waiting, we need to live obediently. You see, a lot of people will say, well, God, you're not coming through when I want you to, so I'm just going to live my way. Uh, God, you didn't do things in my timing, so I'm just done with you. You see, we don't have a fast food God who gives us what we want our way right away. You see, we have a microwave desire, but we have a crockpot God. We have a microwave desire, but we have a crockpot God that God does not work on our time frame. And most of the things that God does that are great take time. It would be like me taking a pot roast and microwaving it for 30 minutes. You know, sure, it would cook it, but man, it would be tough as shoe leather. Why? Because good things take time. If I took that same pot roast and I put it in a crock pot and allowed it to simmer in its own juices for 8 to 10 hours, man, it would be fall apart tender. Why? Because good things take time. And we have a crock pot God who uses time to make these things happen. And so, as we look at the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we say, God, how do we worship in the waiting? We've got to learn to live obediently. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 8 and says this, One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. What does this show us? Once again, if we skip over these verses trying to get to what we think are the good parts of the passage, we can miss some of these really, really important details. You see, not only were Zechariah and Elizabeth living obediently, but they also served regularly. They were serving God regularly. These were people that, especially Zechariah, as a priest, he was involved in the temple on a regular basis. He was a rabbi. He would have been somebody who knew God's word and taught it to the people. He was a priest. He served the people. And because of this, he was in the right place at the right time for God to utilize him in ways that we're still reading about 2,000 years later. But in the same way that we can be tempted to say, you know what, God, you're not giving me what you promised me, so I'm going to quit living obediently, it also can make us divorce ourselves from church community. It can make us say, you know what, God, I'm done with this. I'm done with this church thing. I'm not going to be plugged into community and connection with your people anymore because, God, you're not doing things like I think you should, right? God, you made these promises and they're not happening. But we learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth's example that not only do we need to live obediently, we also need to serve God regularly. We need to be plugged into church community and saying, God, where you have me, I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And the same thing applies now when we're in the waiting for God to fulfill his promises and for his word to come true in our lives. We need to serve regularly where we are. And I know that's hard. I promise you, it was hard for me, knowing that God had called me to full-time vocational ministry, to serve in, in as a volunteer. 
and I would see the pastor get up on stage week after week, Wednesday and Sunday and every other day in between that we had service. And God was just reminding me, that's what he had called me to. And I would say, God, if you've called me to that, why is he on the stage? And why don't you have me on a platform to share your word? Not because I wanted the position and the power. I just wanted to fulfill the, the call that God had put in my heart. It stirred in me. I had this desire. But while God was putting everything in place, we still had to choose to live obediently and serve regularly, even when we didn't feel like it. And look at what happens in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 11, picking up where we left off. It says, While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. And this is the important part, right? This is where the two parts of the Bible, we started with Malachi and then Luke, you know, chapter 3, and now we're back in Luke chapter 1. This is what connects all of this together. Look at what it says in verse 17. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Now look, the angel is telling Zechariah that their son is the fulfillment of prophecy. And Zechariah would have known this. Zechariah was a priest. He was educated in the Holy Scriptures. He would have known the writings and the prophecy of the prophet Malachi, who promised that Elijah would come and he would turn the people back to God. He would turn children back to their fathers and father back to their children, right? And he says all of this would happen. And look at what Zechariah says. And I wish the story didn't go this way, but it's still important to look at. Zechariah then said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is well, also well along in years. Then the angel Gabriel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. I really wish the scripture said that Zechariah and his wife completely trusted in what the angel said, but they didn't. And this is where you and I are in good company, because if like me, you have been given a word from God and like our family was, was told by God that we would be called into vocational ministry full time. And while we spent 12 years waiting for God to fulfill his promise, I wish we could say that we waited patiently. But it was hard. I had the same problem that Zechariah had. I had to say, Lord, how can I be sure this, had come, this is going to happen? Because all the external circumstances just weren't lining up. Nothing was happening like it was supposed to. Same thing was true of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were old, well past the years to have a child. But that's why it was miraculous. And in the same way that we learn from Elizabeth and Zechariah, that not only did they live righteously and serve regularly, but they also learned to wait patiently. <laughs> they lived obediently, they served regularly, and now we're seeing them wait patiently. 
And you and I have to do the same thing. We have to say, God, it's not about my timing. It's about your timing. Because everything in God's timing is perfect. And it always works out right when it's supposed to. And we see this happen if you're willing to go to the next part in verse 21. We see this. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. And look at this. In verse 25, it says, How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. You see, even though they had waited all this time, God showed up at the perfect time. Because remember what we already learned in the Christmas story. That when Mary became pregnant, she went and spent time with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's child in her womb, John as a baby, as as an infant in his mother's womb, right? Not even born yet. Worshipped and was excited when Jesus came close by. (laughs) This had to happen at this time so that Mary could receive this confirmation from Elizabeth that her son really was the Messiah. And so all of this had to happen in the right place. And this leads us to our big truth for the day, that we worship in the waiting by trusting in His timing. We worship in the waiting by trusting in His timing. You see, it looks like when God's doing big things that He's taking a long time. That It may even feel like in my life, in your life, that God's not going to come through, that it's not going to happen, that maybe it was a figment of our imagination. But I promise you, God will always come through at just the right moment. We see this all throughout Scripture where God shows up at just the right time. So what do we do with all of this? Man, we see some really, really cool Scripture that echo this. In Proverbs chapter 3, you know this familiar passage, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you which path to take. In that book, what is Solomon talking about? Solomon is showing us that when we trust in God with all of our heart, not part of it, all of our heart, total trust, and we don't lean on our own understanding, and we seek His will in every area of our life, and all we do, God's going to show us what path to take. You see, in the 12 years that we were waiting on God to fulfill His promise, God was moving behind the scenes to make things happen in just the right place and just the right time to put us in ministry right where he wanted to be. And I'm telling you, (laughs) funny story, when in the middle of my stress and struggle, I was talking to one of my army buddies and he said, James, if you could have any ministry job that you wanted, right, you could make your own ministry job that God's calling you to, what would it look like? And I gave him this long list of things. I was like, but that's never going to happen. Do you realize that just a few short years after that, that felt long, but in the grand scheme of things were very short, God would put me in the position, would line us up to be in the right place that checked off every one of those wish list blocks. Incredible, right? I could not make this stuff up. But you see, if God had given me what I wanted 12 years ago when he first promised it to us, This position did not exist. This job was not there. This ministry opportunity had not come into fruition yet. And so God had to move all of the puzzle pieces into place before he could put us where we are now. 
And the same thing's true of you today. And so if you're in the sound of my voice and it doesn't look like and feel like things are working out and that God has made promises to you that aren't happening, I want to encourage you to worship in the waiting. And you can, I can worship in the waiting by trusting in God's timing. That just like Zechariah and Elizabeth may have looked at their lives and said, God, you're not going to show up. And just as Israel may have looked at history and said, it's been over 400 years, God, you're not going to show up. But at just the right time, everything happened the way it was supposed to. And so I want to encourage you, if you're struggling today in this Christmas season, to believe God, to put total trust in Him, then I want to encourage you, man, worship in the waiting. While you're waiting on Him to show up, worship Him. Because I promise you, at just the right time, if you trust, just like that proverb said, if you trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding, then He will show you what path to take. He'll put your feet on the right path so that you'll be right where you're supposed to be. You and I can worship in the waiting when we trust in God's timing. We can worship in the waiting by trusting in His perfect timing. Let's pray together in closing. King Jesus, thank you for the men and women in the sound of my voice today. And I pray for those who, like me, who are going through the struggle season, that I know what it's like to wait. And God, you're in the process of our waiting. You are putting every perfect piece into position to accomplish your good and perfect will. So I pray as they go through this season of waiting that you would help them to worship you and trust you in every area of their life, knowing that you're going to put everything in its right place. So Lord, bless them and keep them. Make your face to shine upon them and be gracious unto them. Lift your countenance on them and give them your peace. Lord, bless this time as we give it all to you. We love you. Amen.